when we were getting everything turned on this morning, including the, the trees, someone said, why are we plugging those in? It's not Christmas. And it's true. Christmas is over, if you didn't know. I know. But here's the thing. We, we still want to talk about Christmas uh, because here's a line. I'm going to say it a few different times, and I need your help this morning with this. When I say uh, these words, let me find them here so I get it right. <clears throat> when I say Christmas is over, but Jesus is still Emmanuel, I want you to say, which means God with us. So we're going to see that in our passage in just a moment. But when I say Christmas is over, but Jesus is, is Emmanuel, we'll try that again. Which means God with us. So Christmas is over, but Jesus is still Emmanuel. There it is. There it is. So Christmas is over. And I was actually having a conversation with Trail a couple weeks ago. And this is kind of what gave me uh, the idea for that little phrase. Um, there can be a big letdown when, when we come to the end of December 25th and 6th and 4th and all the, the joy and things right? All of a sudden you're putting things away and decorations are preparing to be put away. Um, in my home tomorrow afternoon, lights on the outside are going away. May that be declared in front of others in my house right now. Not necessarily the inside, that's up to other people, but the outside, they're going away tomorrow afternoon if I get around to it. Um, but there's such a buildup to Christmas, right? I mean, again, we decorate, and it's beautiful, and, and we have four weeks of Advent, even in our worship service, and maybe you have traditions at home. And then we get to Christmas Day, and the presents, and gatherings, and then it's over. But even though Christmas is over, Jesus is still Emmanuel. So one more Sunday, I want to consider some of these things. We, we were in Luke for most of the Christmas messages, for all of them. Uh, but I want to dip into Matthew today. And I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. But, but we're going to just meditate on that phrase um, where Matthew quotes Isaiah. But, but listen to the whole uh, passage in its context. Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So a passage we know. And again, even as we worked our way through Luke for the last several Sundays, I tried to weave in some of what Matthew gives to us in his account of of the birth of Jesus. But we get this, this phrase there, that all of this, all of this, this miraculous work of God took place to fulfill a prophecy to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And within this prophecy, again, Isaiah 7, 14, is the mention of, of the virgin. And we talked briefly about that. Um, and, and again, there are people in our day who, who want to argue and say, virgin doesn't mean virgin, it just means maiden. And all, all we have to remember is, um, in, in the Hebrew, yes, in Isaiah, that word can mean a young a woman of marriageable age. Uh, it doesn't have to mean virgin. That, that's true, um, that, that Hebrew word, uh, Alma. However, um, some hundreds of years before Jesus was born, when God brought this group of um, scholars to translate the Hebrew into Greek, okay, they, when they came to Isaiah 7, they could have picked a word in Greek that meant young maiden, but they picked a word, parthenos, that means virgin, uh, God inspired them, we could say, moved them to, to use a word that means virgin because God knew that that prophecy, yes, did uh, have its immediate fulfillment in, in a young maiden who would, who would give a birth to a child and who would play into those immediate contexts in Isaiah's day, but it would point forward to what, what is written about, that Mary would miraculously Conceive, not in any way people, women conceive, right? Um, but, but God would overshadow, God would do this thing. And so they, they translated that Hebrew word with the Greek word parthenos, that means virgin. And so as, as then Matthew is writing all this, he knows that, he picks up that. And so he says, this all took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. And, and by the way, um, I've been asked this a couple times this year. How come sometimes Emmanuel is translated or put up with an E and sometimes an I? Uh, the E is just from the Greek word, Emmanuel, and then the I is kind of more connected to the Hebrew. It's the same word, doesn't no difference, uh, and so on. And that his name shall, they shall call him or call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew gives us that translation, which means God with us. Uh, The late commentator, Leon Morris, I love this paragraph. Listen to this. He wrote this. As far as our information goes, nobody ever called Jesus Emmanuel. It was not the child's name in the same sense as Jesus was his name, right? There's no recording of people coming up to him and saying, hey, Emmanuel, come on, let's go throw the ball or anything like that. Matthew surely intends his readers, and us to understand that Emmanuel was his name in the sense that all that was involved in that name found its fulfillment in him. The quotation and the translation of the Hebrew name underline the fact that in Jesus, 
none less than God came right where we are. And at the end of this gospel, there is the promise that Jesus will be with his people to the end of the age. We'll look at that in a moment. God with us in deed. And then he puts in a footnote. But if one were to ask the faithful through the centuries what they believe Jesus means to them, and thus in this sense, what they call him, God with us is as good an answer as it is possible to give in three words. I love that. What does Jesus mean to you in three words? God with us. That truly is as good an answer that you can find in three words. One of my professors in seminary, he, he writes that the name indicates Jesus' identity, right? God with us. You see, the name Jesus, that specifies what he does. God saves, and, and it even said that he would save people from their sins. But the name Emmanuel specifies who he is, God with us. Jesus, what he does, God saves, and Emmanuel, who he is, God with us. And so while he didn't go around saying, I'm Jesus, but you can call me Emmanuel or anything like that, this is what it just is, is a understanding of everything that is wrapped up in him. Psalm 139, you know, makes it pretty clear that God is always with us in, in one sense, right? We can't ignore or deny uh, God's presence, but at the incarnation, God in the flesh, God with us takes on a whole new meaning and in a whole new special way. And so Christmas is over, but Jesus is still Emmanuel. You'll get it. You'll be ready. So let's think about those three words just for a few minutes this morning. God with us. And what I just want to do is highlight all three words because it's packed. God with us. And let's start with the first word there, God. God. Jesus is God with us. The Christmas story that we've been considering, the Christmas story that we've celebrated, it tells us that Jesus, this baby, this human baby, is God, that God came. Again, this glorious teaching, not just found here, although it's right there, Emmanuel, it's there in the word, but throughout the scriptures that in his coming, God took on flesh. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, came to earth. He didn't leave his divinity behind. He didn't leave half of his divinity and then take on humanity and somehow, you know, 50-50, right? If, if you were with us during our theology conference, Fred Sanders spoke on this. It's part of the doctrine of our triune God. Jesus, the God-man, is 100% God. He came to earth and he took on humanity as well. He didn't give up any divinity, but he, he took on humanity. That is what the incarnation means, God in the flesh. And it's so important for us. It's an amazing truth, and it's found all over the place. Obviously here, but all throughout the New Testament, we are told and taught that Jesus is, is God. In, in John, the gospel according to John, again, he doesn't speak of the birth of Jesus, but he starts his account this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
So there's something different and separate, but he's not done. And then he says, and the word was God. And as you read on in John 1, it's clear that the word is speaking of Jesus. He was in the beginning with God and he is God. A few verses later, John chapter 1, verse 14. Here it is. And the word became flesh. Incarnation. God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt, lived, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The apostle Paul, late in the book of Acts, um, writing to, or rather, as Luke records, Paul meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, as he's encouraging them and challenging them, uh, he says this, pay careful attention to yourself, elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, and then listen to these words, which he obtained with his own blood. So pay careful attention to the flock, to yourself. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. God, Jesus is God. God the Father didn't come and and shed blood. God the Holy Spirit didn't come and shed blood, but God the Son came in the flesh and obtained, purchased, other translations say, the church, God's people, with his blood, the blood of God. The divinity of Jesus is, is clear. But there's other places as well that speak about Jesus being God and, and testify to that reality. Back in the gospel accounts, two things to note just quickly. Jesus forgives people of their sins. Jesus forgives people of their sins. Uh, I love this illustration that I read years ago from Tim Keller. Let me modify it slightly. Um, So on the platform with me this morning playing um, were Andrea singing and Jason playing uh, guitar as well. So if during rehearsal, Andrea were to kick Jason in the knee, and if I were to walk over to Andrea and say, Andrea, I forgive you. Andrea and Jason should both look at me and say something along the lines of, how can you, Paul, forgive Andrea? You can only forgive Andrea if you're Jason, right? You can only forgive a sin that's against you, right? I can't forgive Andrea for kicking Jason. We, we understand that. So to think now about Jesus, for him to say to people like the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Who, who can do that except the person sinned against And the implication, and this again is throughout the scriptures, that when we sin, if Andrea, she didn't kick Jason, I promise, during during rehearsal. Um, But if she'd had, yes, she would have sinned against him. But but the Bible's clear that when we sin against people and horizontally sin, we, we are sinning against God too. Not only should she say, Jason, I'm sorry, please forgive me, but God, forgive me for kicking Jason in the knee. And so for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Who can do that except the person who's been sinned against? And the implication is God. God can forgive, and only God can forgive those kinds of sins. Jesus also, throughout his life, allowed people to worship him. 
We, we've seen in the accounts of the birth of Jesus, right, all these angels showing up. And people are terrified when angels show up, and they want to fall down in fear, and there's a sense of awe. But, but when this happens, and it happens like in, in the book of Daniel and the Old Testament and other places, when, when, when angels are, are about to be worshipped, um, right away the angels typically say, stop. I'm created just like you. Maybe I'm a little different than you, but don't worship me, right? Angels don't receive worship, but over and over there are accounts in the Gospels of Jesus letting people worship him, of not rebuking them, letting, letting them adore him. And, and if he wasn't God, that'd be, that'd be kind of weird, right? Because it's only God that we should worship in, in those kind of ways, and this was especially uh, a problem in, in the day. I mean, for first century especially, but even now, but for first century Jews, um, I mean, they believe strongly in monotheism, that there's only one God. And so for this person they're seeing walk around and doing miraculous things and teaching in ways they'd never heard, to see him receive worship and not rebuke, uh, that would have been troubling, you, you could say. And yet what we have recorded for us again and again and again is that people believed in and trusted in him. And, and that's important too. We'll, we'll get to this at the end, but to believe in Jesus, what we see especially in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John meant that people followed him. They, they, their belief, their mental and, and uh, you know, heart belief that he is who he says, it, it translated into them pursuing him and following him. A genuine Christian, a genuine follower of Jesus follows Jesus. And, and they did that. They followed him, even though he forgave sins, and that would be kind of weird. They, they followed him even, even when he let people worship him, which would be weird unless they were convinced he is who he's been saying he is, he is who others are saying he is. He's God with us. Have you worked that out? And, and I mean, like, maybe you have, but maybe like me, like even this week thinking about this, I need to work this out more. Wow, God with us. You can ask my kids, but I'll tell you, I, I get so angry. There's a church downtown that goes by the name Church of the Incarnation. Man, I, every time I drive by, I think my blood pressure goes up because if I'm right, and I think I am, they don't believe in the incarnation. They do not believe that God came in the flesh. Maybe at one point they did, but that church that bears that name believes Jesus was a good person and did great things, and he's worthy of following and trying to be like, and we should love, which all of that is true, but that God came in the flesh. They don't hold to that anymore. They should give up that name. But he did come. God came in the flesh. David Platt, a pastor and writer, says, Stop and consider who this is who promises to be with you. This is the God who spoke the world into being. The God who rules over all creation, every star in the sky, every mountain peak, every grain of sand, the sun and the moon, all the oceans and all the deserts of the earth. The God whom myriads of angels continually worship and sing praises to. The God whose glory is beyond our imagination and whose holiness is beyond our comprehension. This 
God is with you. And so Christmas might be over, but Jesus is still Emmanuel. This leads to the second of those three words, with us. God with us. This is beautiful and amazing. A baby born some 2,000 years ago, the beauty of, of new life. I got to hug my little buddy, Lydia, a little while ago. She's about to turn two, right? Just the beauty of young new life. And you have that in the incarnation. There's just something good and pure and right. And this is how God came to be with, with us. If you just consider for a moment, right, the ways God showed up before. He, he came in miraculous ways, and there were these theophanies, these moments. Think of Daniel and his buddies um, and the, the account of his three friends in the fire, and then there was a fourth. And so, I mean, he showed up in some ways, but nothing like showing up as, as this helpless baby. All of us, even if we're parents, especially if we're parents, but even if we're not, we, we understand a baby, how helpless and precious and beautiful and messy and all of it, right? Um, that's how God came to be with us. Matthew says it explicitly here, right, when he gives the quote from Isaiah and then helps us understand what Emmanuel translates and means, right? And then at the end of his account, he shares about how Jesus gathered his closest followers and spent some time before his ascension, right before he went to the right hand of the Father where he is now. And, and in Matthew 28, 20, we have Jesus there, and it forms a bookend. Think of, you know, a bookshelf with a book, two bookends that hold everything together. In Matthew uh, 1, we have the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus gives what we often call the, the great commission to go and to make disciples, to, to baptize and to teach, he, he says, in regard to teaching, he says, teach them, those who would follow me, who would be disciples, teach them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. And then here's the promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Matthew ends. So you have this bookend, Emmanuel, God with us. And then as Jesus ascends, he's saying, I'm with you, I'm with you. Of course, in John, some of you know this, when John is sharing what he shares about the life of Jesus, he gives a teaching where Jesus says, it's good that I'm going. And, and the disciples, the apostles, they're terrified. They don't want him to leave. But he says, no, it's good because if I go, another helper will come. I will send him to you. And that's the Holy Spirit. And so really, Jesus is with us now. How? Not, not walking around. We can't get on an airplane and fly to the Middle East and see him. But the teaching of the New Testament is that the Spirit, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to indwell us. If, if we are Christians, we have God with us in the Holy Spirit living in us. When Jesus said he would send. And so he is with us in this way until the end, until he comes and returns. He is, he is with us. Galatians 4, 
the Apostle Paul says this, and I want to just a brief comment. You've you got to hear this. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. <clears throat> but when the fullness of time had come, that is such a great sentence. The fullness of time, just the right time. At the exact time God, in his sovereign providential ruling, decreed for Jesus to come in the flesh. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oh boy, this could be a whole second sermon after salami and cheese, but we'll not do that. Let me, let me simply highlight three things. First, the Trinity, right? In this context, when Paul says, God sent forth his son, he's referring to the Father. So God the Father sent forth his son. So there's the second person of the Trinity. Born of a woman, born under law, who, who was sent to redeem, to, to, to buy us back out of the slavery, to sin and death, to, to free us. And then he says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And, and ladies, don't get tripped up there. In, in the first century, it was only the firstborn son who was able to have the inheritance rights. And, and because we all, through Christ and his spirit that comes into us, now have these inheritance rights, we are sons and daughters. But the point of saying son is you get the inheritance right. And so because you are sons, you have this inheritance. God has sent the spirit of his son. So there's the Holy Spirit, the triune God at work in our salvation, which allows our hearts to cry, Abba, Father, right? The reason we can pray to God, our Father, is because the spirit lives in us. God is with us, the spirit of the son whom he sent, and so it's glorious. Scott Swain, who wrote in the little green book, if you won or bought the little book we were selling during the conference on the Trinity, he writes this, the climax of God's work of redemption brings with it the climax of God's triune self-revelation. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit has reached out through the Son and by the Spirit to embrace us as sons and daughters to the end that we may call God our Father in the spirit of the Son. Oh, that's glorious. God is with us through the Holy Spirit. So Christmas, yeah, it might be over, but Jesus is still Emmanuel. And that leads to the third word, us. Notice it doesn't mean God with perfect people or God with beautiful people or God with sinless people, or God with rich people, right? Us, us, rebellious, angry, prideful, us. 
Not just me, but you too. Humanity. Us. Christmas is hard for some because of the clash of what's supposed to be joy and this great time of year and (coughs) season of celebration. But then real heartache, family dysfunction and and breakup and strife. And and it's hard. Um, I I saw this video this week and it's about five minutes. um, And I'm going to have us watch it here briefly. Let me, let me just set it up though, because here's, here's the thing. And I'm moving toward the conclusion with this. Us, people that, that again, have real hard things happen to us. Real hard things happen against us. Um, how is it, especially at Christmas, that we're able to, um, to, to wear these emotions? And, and so I read this article by some counselors and therapists that speak of the reality of, of what is called integration, and so it's this ability to simultaneously hold um, deep sadness and pain and grief on the one hand, but also hold a reality of positive things as well. And, and, and I think we need to be able to do that as humans. We need to have this ability to integrate. Life is hard. There are real tragedies and, and heartache and hurt, but that doesn't mean we can't also experience joy and, and, and delight in God and in others. Um, Paul would even write that we're to be sorrowful yet rejoicing. Even he knew something about integration. But, but really, friends, the way we do it is through this, right? God's self-revelation. And so I'm going to make an appeal to you in a moment to um, have a plan for getting into this book in the new year and uh, considering some of those things. But I want you to listen to this, um, this counselor speak about um, how God's word helps us Uh, Do that integration. Okay, so take a look. This question pushes us to consider two things. It pushes us to consider how anxiety works or the, the nature of anxiety. And it also pushes us to consider how having a personal relationship with the personal God changes our interaction with anxiety. And now we see both of these things, both of these considerations at play in Psalm 56, verses 3 to 4. And I'm going to read that. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So first, what we see here in verse 3, it it captures the way anxiety works. You see the psalmist speak, when I feel afraid. So it's it's not if I feel afraid, it's when I feel afraid. Anxiety is going to be a constant in our lives. And the reality is, is that the way anxiety works, it doesn't just resolve on its own. In fact, it just tends to persist and become more and more entrenched. And even left to itself, it it multiplies. So that's the first thing we see in verse 3, the nature of anxiety. And then this second thing, this important reality. These two verses capture how 
a personal relationship with the personal God makes a profound difference in our relationship to anxiety. The psalmist says, In God I trust, and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is the psalmist's theological logic. It's sort of divine calculation here. It's as if he's saying, because I trust in a trustworthy God, and therefore there's nothing that man can do to me, I am not going to be afraid. Fear will not rule over me. So you can see the progression in these two verses. There's the movement from being afraid to entrusting himself to God to then courageous action, not being ruled by fear. So let's come back to the question at hand and, and let me reframe it a bit. So how do I get over certain anxiety triggers? I, I want to reframe it in, in the sense of it's less about getting over our anxiety, and it's more about overcoming our anxiety. And we do this as we follow Psalm 56 and this progression, this progression from, from fear to faithfully facing our anxieties. So let's take an example of social anxiety. We, we know that many people experience anxiety regarding large social gatherings. And if we take something like Psalm 56 and this pattern, this progression, it reminds us first and foremost that feeling anxious about these things is inevitable. We're going to feel dread and we're going to be tempted to run and avoid. As the psalmist says, when I feel afraid, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. You're going to feel it in your stomach. Your mind's going to race. The room may start to spin and close in. You may get weak in the knees. But remember, the, the goal here is not to eradicate anxiety, but rather the goal is to not be ruled by anxiety and fear. So to overcome our social anxiety, we're going to use the same logic as the psalmist in Psalm 56. Our logic is this, because I trust God and he has my soul, he has my future, he has my reputation, he has my identity. What can man or woman do to me? I don't have to be ruled by fear. And I have what I need to courageously venture into these intimidating and challenging and uncomfortable, even out of control, social situations. This is the pathway. Psalm 56 presents us the pathway to overcoming anxiety and its triggers. And lastly, just because we can map out the path, it doesn't mean that the road is an easy one. Overcoming anxiety is likely going to be a long and hard battle. But we're not without hope and we are not without help. Overcoming anxiety is possible in light of who God is for us. Us, people who get anxiety over things, who are triggered, he's with us.
And he's with us. His spirit indwells us. And then his word, like Psalm 56, gives us this pathway to navigate. And um, we need that, friends. We, we all get triggered by different things. We all struggle with different things, whether it's anxiety. Us, sinful us, faithless us, we need to be reminded again and again who God is and that he is with us. And his word helps us. And notice it's not a quick silver bullet, but it, it takes like in this example, going into Psalm 56 and following that pattern. Christmas might be over for this year, but Jesus is still Emmanuel. And so I hope you'll respond to that reality. I prayed yesterday and today that we would just be, all of us, in awe at that word, Emmanuel, God with us. Not just here 2,000 years ago and now far away and in some way acting as our advocate and okay, that's cool, but, but he's with us now still. And so like when he walked the earth and when he called people to himself, he bids us, whether we're Christians and we've been Christians, to again respond and to believe and to follow and to say, okay, God, I, I will follow Jesus into these things. Or maybe if you've yet to do that, this is the invitation once again. Believe in this reality that Jesus came to be with us by redeeming us, dealing with our sin, purchasing us by his blood, taking care of our sin. Believe in that. Respond to that. Trust in that, not in your own abilities, and follow. And again, we do that by following him, and, and we follow him by learning what he wants and who he is. And so his word, his self-revelation to us is that means that Christians have forever encouraged Christians to participate in, to, to read and listen and study and, and meditate on and, um, and, and hear and apply God's word. And so I want to invite you again this year to that. I plan on, in 2024, again, doing the five-day Bible reading plan. Uh, I printed out some of these uh, for you. If you're interested, you can grab one in the back. And let me just say briefly, um, this reading plan, at least for me, is, is about familiarity with God's word as opposed to intimacy, right? So I love um, uh, Tim Challies, a, a Christian blogger. He, he wrote about this earlier in the week I, I was reading. Um, there are some ways of reading the Bible that are about intimacy. Obviously, you go slow through something like what this guy we just watched was doing. That, that's about intimacy, meditating on and, and chewing on and studying and, and slowly, right, getting intimate with God through his word. Um, this plan, um, it could be that, but it's generally designed to be more of a familiarity. It's a way to, to read through the Bible uh, in, in a year, and it's scheduled, put out there to be five days. I like that. It fits my rhythms, Monday through Friday. I can get some Old Testament, get into the Gospels a bit, get some Psalms. In regard to the Old Testament, it tries to be chronological, which is helpful. And, um, and so just on Friday, I finished this plan for 2023, and um, I plan to do that again for 2024. So if that would be something for you, I'd invite you to do that. But 
there's just plans galore, right? We, many of us have phones with the YouVersion app. There are different reading plans and different means of getting into God's word. The, the revelation of God who's with us so we can follow him. And that's what we want to do. That's what Emmanuel calls us to. He's not left us alone. Even though Christmas might be over, he is still Emmanuel. So let's stand. We're going to sing a final song um, as a prayer and um, confession of commitment for, for the year. So God, thank you for Emmanuel. You are God with us. Through Jesus who came in the flesh and now through the spirit who lives in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We want to respond and believe and follow. And thank you for the grace that's there because we, we long to, but we'll fall short. Thank you for the grace that's there. May we grow in our familiarity with you through your word this year. May we grow in intimacy with you through your word this year. May we be closer to you as we end 2024 than even we are now. Thank you for the invitation to that. In Jesus' name.